And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go to the book of Micah, which is about in the center of the Bible, chapter 6. And it's a, a, an answer to a question. It's about two-thirds of the way into the Bible. It's about right there. And uh, it's on page 1310, if you have a New American Standard 1995 updated edition single column reference Bible. But Micah chapter 6, verse 8, for the people. Jewish people feel responsible to make a difference in the world. It's because God has called, has called them to that. Salvation came through the Jews, according to John chapter 4. There are three categories of people on the planet, and the Bible says to give offense to none of them. One is to the Jews, the other is to the church, and the other is to the world, the non-Jews. So that breaks down all of humanity. It's not so much an ethnicity as much as it is positionally with God or not. The world is a system that ignores God. The Babylonian system was a, a pseudo-sophisticated, anti-God, idolatrous, uh, crazy kind of a context. The Roman Empire was much the same. Uh, Egypt, they all rep they represent the world. But there's a culture of the kingdom where we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And there are values and there are parameters and there are uh, absolutes that God insists upon for our lives. And there's so many places I could start today, but I want to preach with passion and I want to preach with purpose. I want to preach in order to stimulate your faith and uh, to equip you. You know, years ago, there was a beautiful pastor here in town that pastored a Presbyterian church not far from here. His name was Francis Schaefer. He also started the Labrie communal kind of a setting over there in Switzerland. He was a culture-shaping, brilliant, uh, thinking Christian. And he wrote many books, one of which was, How Shall We Then Live? How Shall We Then Live? And the pastor asked the question, you know, since we're in the world but we're not of it, uh, since we are called to carry the culture of the kingdom and cross over into the world, um, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. What does that look like? Are we allowed to be those hermit isolationists that embrace 16th century clothing and hide out in places and avoid in an avoidance mode and evacuation and escapist mode? Or are we called to be hip and trendy and be out there on the cutting edge, cussing and kind of partying to try to be relevant? No, there's a way to live. And I think it asks a great question. In the book of Micah, the Hebrew prophet asks and lays out the question with a simple answer. And he says basically in chapter 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Say this with me. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. I love it when the Bible gets really essential, bottom line. You know, a guy asked Jesus, what are the, what's the chief commandment? And he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I suppose the motto of St. Louis Family Church is a distillation of that great commandment. Love the Lord your God, honor the Lord your God, serve the Lord your God, worship the Lord your God. He's looking for worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth. Don't forsake the assembling together. Come together 
and then learn how to help people, encourage uh, the believer, uh, support the faint-hearted, lift up the weak, pray for those who are getting stronger, that they'll do well and they'll be augmented and they won't fall. And, and uh, I think if we, if we follow these kinds of and trend toward these kinds of things, what, no matter what the mercurial aspects of culture and society would be around us, we ask the question, how shall we then live? And we come with biblical uh, answers and we, we, we shoot for these things. We'll see a favorable outcome. We'll see a great result. Do justice. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. You know, we live in a world just like in Babylon, just like in Pharaoh's court with Joseph, Babylon with, with Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like the Roman Empire with Paul and the early church, where there's a high form of crazy all around us. My Bible tells me that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Things are skewed. Isaiah the prophet warned that in the, in the eras of life, there would be people that would call evil good and good evil. They wouldn't just blur the lines in the gray zone. They wouldn't just be dismissive of absolutes. They would actually flip it and call evil good and good evil. That's how fallen humanity is. And as, as much as we want to see the Garden of Eden, we're not there anymore. As much as we want to see heaven, days of heaven on earth, we're not there yet. And there's no way there's going to be a utopia developed. There is a dystopia where it's kind of a, a, a skewed and, and there's a, a problem in it. And that's why Pastor Francis Schaefer asked, how shall we then live? And he began to give answers and insights. And I think that we can be credible and be approachable and be flexible and be uh, consistent with uh, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the Lord. For a great door of effective service is open to us, and there are many adversaries. This is, you know, you want to you fight? Some of you guys are kind of, you know, you're scrappers. You want to fight? Okay, I want to tell you, you already have a fight. It's called the good fight of faith. And, and I got a text from my son. He sent Ephesians chapter 6 on our text stream to our household. And it was Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of this darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Micah had a, a glimpse of that in his Old Testament context. Paul had a glimpse of it in the New Testament context. Daniel, when they were exiled, they were deported for 70 years because of the national sin. They went from their, their comfort of their homeland into the harshness of the Babylonian environment. And they were great, committed Hebrews. And these guys, the Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the sophisticates of the, of the Babylonian culture would look for the cream of the crop of the various cultures and the various tribes and the various people groups that they would dominate. And then they would sift out and find the premier choice ones. And they found out uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. And they were educated, they were developed, and they had been taken out of their context, stripped of their Hebrew names, except for Daniel. They kept trying to do that. I called him Belteshazzar or something like that. But he stayed with Daniel. And L means God, Daniel. And all the other boys had, their name, had, had God in their name, as was the custom of the Jewish people. They got their names their identities stripped, their, even their clothing went from the Hebrew clo cultural clothing to Babylonian clothing, their food changed. They, they had dietary laws that they were specific with and respectful of, and then they were thrown into this whole different 
atmosphere, this whole different culture, but yet they somehow maintained it being in it, but not of it. And they didn't get hyper weird where they became no longer useful in God's hands. In fact, they stayed so credible and so useful that he went from Nebuchadnezzar's domain and then into Darius, and then you name off several kings through the transitions of the different governances. And these Hebrew godly, God-fearing people that understood doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the Lord actually were used by God in their prayer lives. They were used by God to interpret dreams for their corrupt kings. They would go into the court and they would be upon invitation. Because they had developed, because they had prepared, because God had put his hand on them and trained them and got them ready, even in a terrible and harsh context when it did not look ideal at all. And the false prophets were saying, hey, this is not going to be that big a deal. We realize they've taken the utensils and the gold and the precious elements out of the temple. It's all coming back. It's coming back real fast. And they had a, their message was a false one of quick recovery. And Jeremiah had to come along and say, guys, listen, don't listen to that. It's going to be 70 years. And he said, but what you're supposed to do in the 70 years is get married, have babies, have your babies grow up, get, have them get, find mates for them, have babies, have grandbabies, go out in your garden, plant your seeds, grow your tomatoes, grow your jalapenos, eat the produce thereof. And this was what was really critical. Seek the welfare of the city where you have been put into exile so that you will have welfare. And it reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then prayers, petitions, giving of thanks, entreaties, be made on behalf of all men. But for all, for, for all who are in authority, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Daniel thrived behind enemy lines. Why? Because of his covenant relationship with God, because of his commitment toward God, his passion for God, more specifically, however, God's passion for him. God made those boys fireproof in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, furnace. The only thing that burned off when they got thrown into that fiery furnace were their, their bonds. And one like the Son of Man appeared, and Jesus came out of his historical context to make a preview appearance in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I thought there were three men in the fire. He said, yeah, there were three men. Well, I see a fourth man, uh, one like the Son of Man, walking in the fire. God will get in there in the fire with you. God got in, the, in Daniel 6. He got in there in the, in the lion's den. Have you ever had an overnight stay in a lion's den where you felt the pressure I watched one of these films. Some of them are kind of cheesy. This one was very good. It was my favorite episode of one of these recent Christian shows. And it showed an actor in a pit, and it, the camera work, the lighting was great, the makeup, the beard was not a paste on like mine is. It was a beautiful, real beard. And Daniel, the guy that played Daniel, he, it, was, it, was, it was like lion level, one of the videos. And it was, it was really gripping, because I love this story because of how he got delivered. They couldn't catch Daniel doing things without integrity. He was a man of honor. He did what was right. He did justice. He, he loved kindness, and he walked humbly with the Lord. So they had to catch him in a loophole where if you pray to another god, you're going to get punished for it, and they found him praying. That's how Daniel got in trouble for praying. But nevertheless, the Lord delivered him. And the king got so attached to and so affectionate toward 
and so dependent on Daniel because of the gift in his life, because of the calling on his life, because of the mandate God had given him, even as a de- in the deportation as refugees, even in a very contrasted, harsh environment. How shall we then live? Daniel lived, and the Bible says in the second chapter, Daniel made up his mind. This Hebrew boy said, I'm just going to be who I am. And this is the message that Joseph, Joseph had a dream. I'll get back to Daniel because he's in the lion's den and we want to get him out of there. Joseph had a dream, and he, had to, he thrived in Pharaoh's court, which was sophisticated idolatry. It was a high, high form of crazy, as was Paul with Rome, as it always has been the contrast of being in the world, but not of it. Listen, with Daniel, the king, he was so, he couldn't undo the harsh, legalistic, a threat that he made once he made a legal decree he couldn't it was so binding he couldn't even change it but he stayed up all night praying for Daniel in his primitive however he prayed to whomever he prayed and God uh, the next day he ran to the tent to the tomb to the to the lion's den and he said Daniel uh, has the God whom you serve delivered you pause O king live forever Yes, the God that I serve has delivered me. Get him out of there. Where are the accusers? Bring him in here. Throw him in there. Their bones started crunching before they hit the litter box. And then the key thing was this heathen king turned around to his domain and said, hey, this, this God is God. This God is God. They, the same thing with, with Paul. He appealed to Caesar. And he had Festus and Felix, and he, he was in the Philippian jail. And they said, hey, is it okay for you guys to beat up on a Roman citizen? He used his citizenry. He, he was not stupid. He wasn't politicizing things, but nor was he backing off in some sort of sissification. He was strong in the Lord. He had a mission. And he did it with skill. He didn't do it antagonistically. He didn't do it being overbearing. He didn't do it in an obnoxious way. He was all about doing justice, loving kindness, or walking humbly with the Lord. Even Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they apparently embraced what the prophet Jeremiah had insisted upon to clarify in the midst of all the voices of prophecy with all the false uh, uh, conjecture. He had to sift through all of it, being a true prophet and speaking the word of the Lord. And he said, listen, he said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. Let that verse burn bright in your heart. People that are literalists and uh, expositional preachers get upset when these things are taken out of context. So I've been diligent to study that whole chapter over and over and over again in the book of Jeremiah. And it was, a, it was an admonition for a, a group of people that were deported from Jerusalem because of the national sin of the time. And they were stuck in a situation. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of the Lord stood and the anointing and power and vibrancy and impartation of God on those people protected them through fire and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the enemy's plans and caused them to thrive. And not only that, but God, and you read the book of Daniel, he prophesied things that were specific for his time, specific for the early beginnings of the Messiah period, and then also things that have not even happened yet. 
And they're so vast and so thorough and so great. And if you think about the context they were born in, it was not, it was less than ideal. And the great things of life come out of these moments of challenge and of trial. Silver and gold are refined and purified through fire. And don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that tries to try us as though something uh, shocking has happened. Don't be afraid of sudden fear. God's not given us a spirit of fear. We trust the Lord that as he was faithful, listen, there are going to be 70 years, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. In the days of uh, Isaac, there was a famine, and yet he gave and he served and he dug wells and he fought against the Philistines' attempts to stick dirt on the tops of the wells to try to suppress and stuff the flow. But yet the Lord continued to bless Abraham, bless Isaac, bless Jacob. And he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, will not be consumed. That's a promise for the Jewish people. The promise of, of uh, Jeremiah 29 was for the Jewish people and the deportation during that period in Babylon. And we could look at it as Christians in 2020 and derive huge and significant specifics from it because that God is our God. And as it was specific in that particular era, in that particular time period, you can see the sound doctrine and correct interpretation of it, but you can also see the pattern of God's faithfulness there, the way he was faithful with Joseph in Pharaoh's court. He had a dream and his brothers got jealous. Some of the worst hurts in life are friendly fire. The, the psalmist said, it wasn't an enemy that messed with me. It was a person that walked with me in the throng and fellowshiped with. Those are the greatest backstabbings that I've ever had in my life. The way pastors get holy is by being stabbed in the back. And that, yet, nevertheless, the firm foundation of the Lord stands. And you got to walk in love, do justice, love kindness. Oh, walk in love. Everybody say, walk in love. This is proactive and not reactive. And it's also not sissy. Man, it takes everything to walk in love. Daniel had to walk in love through that moment where he was falsely accused. Paul had to continue to appeal to Caesar. In fact, at one point they said, man, if you had not appealed to Caesar, we'd have let you go at this point because we find nothing guilty on you. But he had appealed to Caesar because that was his call. He didn't look for an easy way out. Uh, the, the path of least resistance bears the least result. We are not of the ranks of the easy breezy. We're not, we're not called out of darkness just to be passive and float on the flowery bed of ease. No, there's no promise for that. What God promises us is that we are deployed into the world considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And it's pretty intense. I watched a History Channel uh, and I got to the privilege of going to the, the Colosseum in Rome. I've been there a couple of times. We took a deep tour when we were visiting a Bible school teaching over there and we walked through the, the basement of it and all around in the stands and, and you know, it, it's been stripped of a lot of its beauty and like the pyramids have been stripped by the careless, you know, through time, it was much more beautiful and, and uh, had, you know, layers of marble and things that's all stripped off and they used it to, to build their tiny houses and their double wides and stuff like that. But the... The whole thing was built around 70 AD as for blood sport so that gladiators and then um, convicted criminals and then later on Christians with lions could be thrown in there and for the pleasure of the observers 
could enjoy a wholesome afternoon with popcorn and a Diet Coke, watching people be slaughtered and eaten up by lions and animals and cut up by each other. So that shows seasons of why humanity needs a savior. And the idea that we're evolving, we're improving, we're eventually going into a utopia, it's a great idea, it's a nice dream, but it's, it's humanly impossible. Though no matter how sophisticated, a life without God is an empty one. And yet, here Daniel carries the culture of God in the environment of godlessness. Here Joseph gets thrown into a hole by his brothers. He could have been resentful and checked out of his vision and mission, but he had to walk in love. And if you read the story, to me, that not only was he the famine relief guy that helped everybody and overcame the false accusation from Potiphar's house, and if you don't know the story, read it in Genesis. It'll blow your mind. What really got me was at the end of his life, he looked at his brothers and his family and said, I forgive you all, and that he got over it. He got over it. Um, Lenny Kravitz said that before his dad died, he made amends with him. His mother was a Christian. And he went to a choir camp, and a guy led him to the Lord at choir camp. And I like that. But I liked it hearing that in the end, all's well that ends well. He had a, he had a good end with his, his, uh, his, his dad that he had a hard time with. But I think with Joseph, all his brothers, I mean, thank God for Reuben and Judah who said, hey, let's just sell him into slavery, you know. And they pulled him out and they, you know, put a lamb's blood on his coat of many colors and made his dad weep for the rest of his life until, imagine they'd come back together and it's like, hey, I forgive y'all. Now I got a job to do. I need to do famine relief, not only for Egypt. Notice, he's a slave in Egypt. And like Jeremiah telling the people in the deportation, seek the welfare of the city that you've been exiled into so that you will have welfare. What? When, when Francis Schaeffer wrote, How Shall We Then Live? We see how the early church, how Paul went in boldly in the Athenians and talked to them about the altar with the inscription to the unknown God. He didn't just fall into the predictable, the people that are, are, are Jewish who understand the law, I'm going to just stay in the verbiage of that in Acts chapter 2. He went on to develop an understanding your Athenian poets, this is what your altar says. The person you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he became all things to all men in order that he may save some. Not a chameleon that was like dropping F-bombs and smoking and getting drunk to try to be relevant, which is what some of the modern church is trying to suggest, but staying wholesome, stay, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the Lord. A little of that will go a long way. A little of that went a long way for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they kept having reoccurring interpretations of the vision that befuddled all the Babylonian uh, sorcerers. They couldn't figure it out. Joseph and the magicians of, of Egypt could not figure out in any way, scratching their heads, couldn't figure out what the Pharaoh was perceiving was God was trying to speak in that situation, which I'm sure is an answer to prayer. That's why we pray for those in authority. I'm sure Daniel spent a lot of time praying for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, by the way. Build a big tower, bow to us. Bow to me. If you don't, I'll burn you in this furnace. That's crazy. It's crazy that the, the Romans would build a Colosseum just so we can just slaughter people and people can all enjoy it and have a good afternoon of sport. 
And we wonder about that. And I got saved in the early, early 70s Jesus movement in Southern California. And I, in my history perspective of my personal life, saw in the fast-paced changes from the wholesomeness of the 50s I was born into through the changes of the 60s, the idyllic hippie aspirations of love that started to cave in under uh, hedonism and drug abuse and hard drugs. Eric Clapton said when the hard drugs came in, it killed off any of the virtuous ideals of the 60s. And he was right. And he saw it. He was on the front lines of it with the Yardbirds and Cream and, and all the different things. He, he, and he's, I went to a concert and saw him and I just had tears in my eyes that he at least made it with all these others who died in their young age. And he, to me, it's not the music. It's like, that guy's still alive. I even know a friend who, they prayed together with the gospel, so I don't know where it's all at, but he did write with Stevie Winwood uh, in Blind Faith, uh, The Presence of the Lord. You should download it. It's a good song. We sing it in church sometimes. God addressed that hippie movement, all the Eastern religion that was being imported in by the British rock groups and all the the distortion that came. One guy said the reason he opened up to the Eastern religion was when he took a lot of LSD. That kind of tells you the origin of a thing. And then yet, yet the firm foundation of the Lord stands. You guys with me? Yeah. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord. Yeah. Do the right thing. Yeah. I, I went to the doctor this week, and uh, he usually has a high and tight, amazing sort of hipster haircut. He's born in Korea, so he's got amazing hair. But this time I saw him, he had a mask on and a hat on, and he had scrubs, and I was going in for a personal um, a meeting with him. And um, first thing I said to him, because he, he just, his hair was real long, coming out of his hat, you know. Man, you're growing your hair out, it looks awesome. I'm not growing my hair out. He said, uh, I haven't had a haircut since March, because the only place I go to is a grocery store and work because I want to decrease the exposure because he works at Mercy and they've signed up really technical responsibilities. He's being diligent with it. And uh, he said, my kids, he said, they can put their hair up in a bun. I said, man, that is awesome. That's so 70s. And he laughed. You know, he didn't know what to do with me. And uh, so I'm going to have another appointment in April. I said, man, your hair's going to be all the way to the middle of your back. And he didn't like that, but I thought it looks so cool. Everybody say it's always the 70s for Pastor Jeff. I got saved in the 70s, and I watched Jesus intervene, and I watched something they now call a Jesus movement. And when I read about how God took care of the exiles and the deportation in Babylon, and I read about how God took care of Joseph in the Pharaoh's court and how uh, it was not nurturing, nor was it reinforcing or bolstering of their Jewishness or their godliness, it was actually counter to that, and yet, nevertheless, they thrived behind enemy lines. As did Esther under Ahasuerus, what was he, a Persian king? That she thrived, stood up, and stood for her people and prevented another genocide extermination of the Jewish people with her great and grand, godly, womanly, mighty, lion-esque faith. You've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this, her cousin Mordecai told her. She goes, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna petition for my people. Daniel said, I am not going to back off. I'm making up my mind. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. I'm not going to get sour. I'm not going to pick the wrong fight. 
I'm going to fight for what God's called me to fight for, and I'm going to just trust the Lord. And you seem to see a buoyancy in Daniel. You seem to see that when he, Jeremiah assured them, hey, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calam calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then let that ring through history. Let that ring and come in and inf inform your now. The God of ancient uh, the ancient Hebrews helped during the Babylonian captivity, did he not? Read about it. See how they flourished. See how God anointed and used them. Read the book of Daniel afresh. It'll encourage you and strengthen you. Read about Joseph in the book of Genesis and how he was like a, a, a tree that flourished and the boughs of his branches went over the wall where things seemed to contain him and restrict him. He knew no restriction. Why? Because his roots were in God who was so faithful and as he cooperated with God and he did justice, loved kindness and walked humbly with the Lord, God used him to honor him and to help people and make a punch, huge impact to where he was able to provide food when people were getting ready to starve. Not only the Hebrew people up on the other side that came back over, but even the context of the people that held him in, in bondage. I, I'm telling you, we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And who is the one that overcomes the world? But he that believes Jesus is the Son of God. And this is where we have to center. He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what is right. Faith pleases God. Trusting God is a bigger deal than ever. We don't allow ourselves to get depressed. We don't try to read into it. The barrage of prophetic interpretations that came upon the exile people in Babylon, Jeremiah had to correct it. With, it's not going to be the quickie thing that they're saying. It's going to, he said, 70 years. But what you do is you don't decrease, you don't, inc you don't decrease, you increase. How shall we then live? Nobly, boldly, doing the right thing. I was talking to my doctor, and he said, one of his patients said, who'd you vote for? And he said, I really don't want to talk about it. Well, who'd you vote for? He said, well, I'm not, I don't want to be political. Well, who'd you vote for? And he said, well, listen, I'm, my family, my wife, we're a blended family. They're both from Korea. But he said, she voted for one, I voted for this one. And, and then he, so he outed himself. And as soon as he outed himself, she said, I don't think you can be my doctor anymore. And he was like, and he was, he was letting me know this. He, and then he said, I hope I'm not offending you. And I said, no, man. I'm trans-political, man. I'm about the father's business. I'm, I, I see too much. Listen, I see. I have values. I have opinion. I have a strong, fixed approach on a lot of things. I value the things I see, as I see from the, my interpretation of God's word. Uh, you know, I see what's really important. But I, I want to tell you, we've got to keep the big deal, the big deal, and the big deal is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord. And that is not glib, and that's not a little thing you get on a, on a, a little bread box where you pull out a promise of the day or you put a bumper sticker out. Get a hold of this. Get a hold of this. More importantly, let this get a hold of you. Let this grip your current, your conscious, your, 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 your worldview. Let this get a hold of your, and settle your, your heart. There's a woman I haven't seen in church for a long time. She came in the last service. On her way out, she had her mask on, and I had my mask on out in the front. I looked at her. I said, it's so good to see you. She said, good to see you, Pastor. I said, you know what? You exude peace. And she went. And I, and I wasn't trying to flatter her. I wasn't trying to say something nicey-nice. 
I don't want to do that. You know, it's like Balaam said, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord to do either more or less. So I don't want to, I don't want to be mealy mouth and I don't want to be like overly, a man that overpraises cheapens it. So I want to be led by the spirit. But that's what I had in my spirit. She said, it's funny you say that, Pastor, because I've been really in a lot of anxiety. And I said, well, then maybe God's peace is trying to come on you and I can sense it. And I think, why not? I mean, and then she comes to church for the first time in, in a long time. And I think there's going to be more and more of that. You know, God's not so much looking for the Daniels of God. He's looking for people that look for the God of Daniel. And, and by that, I mean where we go before him and go, you know, God, you took care of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a furnace, in a lion's den. But worse yet, the crazy opposition of the Babylonian godless bearing down on the sentiments of those committed faithful Jewish men. And yet, they were in the world but not of it, and they managed to be strengthened in the Lord, maintain courage in God, keep a flow where they could hear from him. Daniel bothered to write down what God gave him. He stayed true to the Lord, and many and amazing, interesting things came through that. And then, in fact, he said, you'll seek for me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I'll be found of you, declares the Lord, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. So here we are. Do justice. What's that? Do the right thing. Do the right thing. The Hebrew word is mishpat, and it means divine law. You know, the Bible says because lawlessness has increased, many people's love will grow cold. And that's been happening. It happened in Rome. That's why they built the Colosseum for blood sport. It happened in Babylon. That's why Nebuchadnezzar built a furnace to cook people that didn't agree with him. That's why in the Pharaoh's court, it was crazy land. That's why during the Jesus movement, society had become crazy. And yet God rolls up his sleeves and deploys simple, humble, obedient, loving, righteous-oriented people. The Vietnam veteran that picked me up in the 1962 uh, uh, Impala at 1 o'clock in the morning in November of 1972 did his best to drive me 10 miles out of his way and explain to me how through his Vietnam experience with combat, getting addicted to the heroin that was so plenteous and available in the Southeast Asia, and then being dishonorably discharged and coming back to a thankless nation, imbibing on drugs, sex, and rock and roll, failing on his wife, and his wife left him, he cheated, getting an Eastern religion, and none of it satisfied, and then landing on the simple, simple, essential message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he turned to me and he told me, Jesus changed his life. And it went right over my head. I had no point of reference. He wasn't really powerful in his persuasiveness. It wasn't particularly ultra wisdom. It was just in simplicity. He stammered a little bit. He was nervous about talking to me. In retrospect, I look back and I realize he wasn't like a big eloquent guy, but he was real. And he meant what he said. He was doing justice, he was loving kindness, and he was walking humbly with the Lord. And he, he got to the top of my street, driving me 10 miles out of his way. I suppose that's why there's such an emphasis on service here at the church because I'm a product 
of a service-oriented moment from a genuine Christian. And just in that simple moment, I had the gospel presented to me. He didn't know this, but two weeks before that, I was laying in bed, and as I was going to sleep, I said, God, if you're real, please show me. And God sent this believer. And right before that, I got picked up by a guy there in Upland, California, on my way to Alta Loma from my restaurant job. And when I got in his car, I could tell he was under the influence of something, and he wouldn't let me out of his car. And I was on this main road where I, there were more cars, and I could get a ride up close to my house, and I could make it to my house. But he said, I'm going to take you to my house. And he started to threaten me, and he started to scare me. And I'm telling you, I was frightened. I was a 16-year-old kid, and it was stupid. I don't recommend anybody hitchhike now. But then it was a mode of travel. He, got, he turned off the main road and he was going up into this dark place up in, and fortunately there was road construction, big pile of dirt in the street and he was loaded and he stopped. And I had the presence of mind to jump out of the car and slam the door. I ran as hard as I could. My heart was pounding, my mouth was dry, I was scared. So I didn't want to hitchhike and I had several miles. I had, I don't know, 10 miles to get back to my house in one o'clock in the morning. So I was walking for a while then finally I reluctantly stuck my thumb out and a car passed but then the next car that passed was a person like you that was sincere that had been changed by Jesus that had a confidence in the gospel that understood his time that took it took the moment seriously with a stranger and gave a ride 10 miles out of his way and while he gave the ride 10 miles out of his way, earned the right to speak into my life with the credibility and the contrast he didn't know of how terrible the lost, fallen, mixed up, worldly guy was and the threat and the potential of harm and the contrast of this guy who had been the harmful, lost, worldly guy, but had experienced a miracle of salvation. There was a twinkle in his eye. He had, he had weathered lines on his face. He was a few years older than me. He, had, he was an old soul. He had lived through so much. He had overcome addiction. He, he got restored when he found Jesus, and he told me that Jesus could change your life. And I thought, well, whatever, you know. That's good you found something for yourself. I gave him no indication that he was getting through to me. Some of the greatest miracles we're going to see in these upcoming days come from just the simple asking God in prayer, the simple action of doing the right thing, the simple action of being merciful and walking in kindness, the simple action of staying humble. God hates a haughty look. There's so many things I wanted to read to you about the six things God hates in Proverbs. A haughty look and lies and hands that shed innocent blood and all these things. And we gotta pray. We, we live in as harsh a world as Babylon, Egypt, or Rome. When the Jesus movement hit, the world was not the 50s idealism or the post-World War II hopes. It was becoming super diseased, super fast. And yet the Lord rolled up his sleeves and brought us out of darkness. Listen, guys, you're here by design. You, you've been brought into the kingdom in this moment. And it's to take hold of Micah 6.8, put a Put a marker in your Bible and just meditate on that verse. Do a study on what it means to love mercy. That, that mercy is the word hesed. It appears like 248 times in the Old Testament. The Hasidic Jews, 
the Lubavitch Jews that are really, really devout, they live by hesed. Hesed is God's obligatory loyal law. It goes two ways. They believe God is a God of faithfulness like he was with Daniel, like he was with Joseph, like he was with, with Paul and the early church, and like he is to us to a thousand generations. But also it's a lifestyle where they feel responsible to treat others properly. And that is where we're gonna provide contrast in our world, not by isolating, not by wearing 16th century clothes and big hats and no mustache, long beards and hiding out. God's called us to show forth his excellence in this world. And how shall we then live? This Presbyterian pastor, Francis Schaefer, just down the street a few miles from here, articulated it, that we're to be in the world, but not of it. We're to pick our fights. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Lord's bondservants should not be quarrelsome. Be discreet. Be spirit-led. Be sensitive to the voice of God. Trust him. I got home that night. I got up to the top of my street. The man said, you want to talk some more? I said, no. He said, okay. He said, would you mind if I pray for you? I said, yeah, that'd be great. And I got ready to leave the car. And he, and he said, Heavenly Father, if what I said to Jeff is real showing. That's all he prayed. Okay. And then he had a... He turned a light on and he had a Tupperware um, uh, like trays under, bolted underneath his, uh, his, his uh, stainless steel or his, uh, his, his steel uh, uh, dashboard. The thing about those 62 uh, Impalas, they didn't even have padded vinyl so that if you banged your head on there and you bled all over it, you just hose it off. So that was their method of safety. Then I don't even think it had seat belts, but, but he did have a gospel track and he gave me one. I went home and I read it. He doesn't know to this day that I gave my life to Jesus. His witness in those turbulent times of my massive teenage insecurity, of just verifiable fear, and he cut through it with the truth of Jesus. Well, when Jill Cosby invited me to church, it was like this place. It was wholesome. It had love. You felt welcome at the first I didn't feel like I wasn't doing it right. I felt like I got there and it was like, hey, welcome, man, welcome. And I loved it so much, I learned the songs before I even got saved. And I was standing there singing the praise songs before I even got saved. And it made the pastor mad. He was looking at me like, I'm over there with the girls and I'm worshiping God, you know, and I'm not even saved. And he's like, I'm gonna do an altar call with some hellfire on it. And he did, and I gave my heart to Jesus. There's a guy in here and he's going straight to hell if he doesn't get saved. It's like, that's me. And I sat so long on the floor, it was at 70s and it was, a, it was on the floor. We sat barefoot and stuff and I, my legs fell asleep and I was too nervous to, um, to straighten my legs and stuff. So I stayed still and my, both of my legs were like honey baked hams. They went to sleep, they were like in the refrigerator. And so then when he, he said, stand up. So I stood up and I went, and they all went, oh, because they were, they were spirit filled. So it was like, Guys, I'm not falling out. I later found out they thought I was falling out under the power. It's because my legs were numb. Let's all stand up on our feet. If you fall over, I'll know why. Say this with me. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord. What are we to do? We're to pray like never before. Let's believe God for justice. Let's believe God for truth. God hates it when people lie. And I know Daniel, he prayed, man. He had to pray in the condition of Babylon. He had to pray in, the system, in that system. He, Joseph prayed in the system of, of, of the Pharaoh. Paul prayed profusely in the context of Rome.
and the people from Caesar's household and Praetorian Guard got saved, radical things happened because the kingdom prevailed. The world passes away, kings and kingdoms pass away, systems pass away, regimes pass away, but you could outlast those kingdoms and overcome the world by doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. And everybody said,